Welcome to our weekly Catechism class. This lesson is a weekly look at the Heidelberg Catechism to help us to learn Christian doctrine with a warm and a practical application. Every lesson has an accompanying study guide. The web link to find that guide is in the episode notes. Now, let's start the class and learn the lessons. In John 14 and verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father except through me. So welcome to our catechism class. In this podcast, we're going to be looking at Lord's Day 11, question 30. And the catechist here is asking us about what we must believe in order to be saved. Remember the words of Paul to the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16 and verse 3. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. But we just can't believe anything in case we get entirely the wrong idea about who Jesus is, about what he has done. So our instructor is using the words of the Apostles' Creed, an historic statement of Christian belief, to help us to understand who the Lord Jesus is and what we must believe about him so that we can properly get to know him. In question 30, he challenges us with this question. Do those who seek their salvation or well-being in saints, in themselves or anywhere else, also believe in the only Saviour Jesus? Now that's a very important question, for the eternal destiny of my soul is at stake, and his answer, and the answer we must willingly and heartily give, is, though they boast of him in words, they in fact deny the only Saviour Jesus. For one of two things must be true, either Jesus is not a complete Saviour, or those who by true faith accept this Saviour must find in him all that is necessary for their salvation. Stay with me. We'll take a closer look at this very important topic. I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata Podcast. Now, what the Catechist wants us to understand here is the uniqueness of God's only Son and the exclusive claim that he makes that there is no other way to heaven except through him. As we noted in our last Catechism class, there will be absolutely no one in heaven who has not got there through Jesus. They will not be there without Christ. I am the way, said Jesus, the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, Peter declared, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. John 3 and 15, Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
In the writing and the preaching of the early apostles, Christ is the only way by which we can be saved. Now that probably doesn't suit the mindset of too many modern men and women. In this postmodern age, where absolute truth has been abandoned in favour of your truth and my truth and all truths being equally valid, the exclusive claims of Christ and his followers, the Christians, are utterly repellent. They may even have some idea of heaven, but how will they get there? Surely all roads, they say, will lead to God in this modern age. But the Lord Jesus wouldn't have tolerated any notion like that. To quote a Christian apologist of the past, either Jesus is Lord over all, or he isn't Lord at all. There are no grey areas. It's black and white. Jesus said in Luke's Gospel, chapter 11 and verse 23, He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth. You are either with Jesus on this matter, or you are totally against him. And there will be no one in his presence in eternity who has been against him in this life. To be with him is to own him alone, and no one else as Lord of your life and Lord of all. Now, how does that affect you and me? That's where the catechist will help us. So what do we seek when we seek Christ? We learn in the Catechism that there are two areas in which we need Christ and him alone. The first is for our salvation. Salvation is only through Christ. We know that. But do we know that in Christ we have everything that we need for our salvation? Look at Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. I'm going to read it to you from the Amplified Version of the Bible. You read it in the a version of the scriptures that you normally use. But Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 in the Amplified Bible tells us that the divine power, his divine power, has bestowed on us absolutely everything necessary for a dynamic spiritual life and godliness through true and personal knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Now the reason I wanted to read that from the Amplified Version, a version that I'm not fond of and that I don't normally use for preaching, in fact I never use for preaching, is because of the way that it emphasises the first part of the verse. For his divine power has bestowed on us absolutely everything that is necessary for a dynamic spiritual life. Now that's such an amazing verse. In a poem that caused controversy in the PCUSA for its theological soundness, two modern composers, Townsend and Getty, wrote these words. In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solemn, solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm, what heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ, I stand. We have everything that we need for our salvation in Jesus. But not only do we seek and find complete salvation in Christ, but we also seek our security. 
The version of the Catechism that we use is a modern English version, and it renders the original German of Heidelberg as being well-being. However we put it, the point is that Jesus is enough to both save us and to keep us. One of the objections we hear when we speak to people about salvation often is, well, I can't become a Christian because I know that I could never keep it. That's true. Of course you couldn't. Not for a minute. Sin would overcome you and you'd fall away and you'd be lost. Of course you couldn't keep it. But you see, the good news is that you don't have to. If you are truly saved, if you are trusting Christ alone, then he will keep you. Listen to just a handful of biblical promises about that. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 32, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? John 10 and verse 28, And I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. John 6 and 39, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. John 10 and 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. John 17 and 2, For you granted him authority over all people, so that he may give eternal life to those you have given him. Here's that poem by Getty and Townend again. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Is it any wonder the liberal theologians of the PCUSA didn't like that? So here are the two great areas of our Christian life in which we need to apply the exclusivity of Christ. Only Christ can save us. Only Christ can keep us. No one else but Christ can save us and keep us. But what could go wrong? Let's look at some of the mistakes that we might make. The Catechism warns us of three danger areas that we could easily fall into in both seeking salvation and seeking security and spiritual well-being. One of those is trusting in Christ and in the saints. Now, we need to be really careful here. Living in Northern Ireland as I do, it would be easy for a listener to think that what comes next is just a result of some inbuilt anti-Catholic bias. It's not. And I know that some of my good Catholic friends may beg to differ from me. But look, I'm a Protestant. I'm a Reformed Christian. So was Zacharias Ursinus, the main author of the Catechism. And he was writing in the context of his own day. Many of his contemporaries in his churches were converted Roman Catholics. Many of them in their unconverted days would have held to a superstitious form of belief in the work of saints, in salvation and in security. I know that some of my Roman Catholic friends will insist that they do not worship saints. Their term for the dead who have been elevated to sainthood canonized, they claim, by the Church of Rome. 
And they will insist that they do not worship Mary, the mother of Jesus. But you can see how superstition can arise when you read the words of the Catholic Catechism. Article 956 of that Catechism talks about the intercession of the saints, and it says, being more closely united to Christ, those who dwell in heaven fix the whole earth more firmly in holiness. They do not cease to intercede with the Father for us, and here's the key line, as they proffer the merits which they acquired on earth through the one mediator between God and men, Jesus Christ. So by their fraternal concern is our weakness greatly helped. Now, many simple Catholics, and certainly of those newly converted who then occupied the pews of the Protestant churches of Heidelberg, may have once believed, and many ordinary Roman Catholics still believe, that the saints have some kind of a treasury of merit, earned by their godly and exemplary lives, and that some of that merit could then be applied to the lives of those who are believers today. All they had to do then was to honour that saint. I'm using the word saint here in quotation marks. And seek the saint's help for temporal and eternal benefits. And all this despite the fact that the Bible teaches us clearly that we have no merit of our own. We have no merit whatsoever. For all our acts of righteousness, our feeble, righteous or charitable works are like filthy, soiled, stained rags, like repulsive slurry in the blinding light of the Holy God. So what so-called merits then do these dead saints have of their own to proffer before God? None whatsoever. Sometimes, in fact often, we would find notices placed in some of our local newspapers. A prayer to St. Anthony. O holy St. Anthony, gentlest of saints, your love for God and charity for his creatures made you worthy when on earth to possess miraculous powers. Encouraged by this thought, I implore you to obtain for me, put your own request in here. Go on, O gentle and loving St. Anthony, whose heart was ever full of human sympathy, whisper my petition into the ears of the sweet infant Jesus who loved to be enfolded in your arms and the gratitude of my heart will be ever yours. Say this prayer three times and then publish it and St. Anthony will answer and grant your wish. That is sheer superstition and nothing else. That's a danger. There's a second danger. That we might trust in Christ and myself. And that second specific area in which we may attempt to supplement Christ's saving and keeping work is far more challenging for us. Our instructor wants us to know that we must never add to what Christ has done any merit or any labour of our own. Now that's a common error among Protestants. It's the root of Arminianism. It's the root of that rampant semi-Pelagianism that persists in modern evangelical circles. You know what semi-Pelagianism is, don't you? The erroneous belief that fallen creatures, even though they are sinful, even though they are 
lost in their sin and have darkened hearts, that somehow they have enough righteousness within them to make them morally competent enough to contribute toward their salvation, that they can somehow take hold of the offer of the grace of God through an act of their unregenerate natural will. You'll recognise it in churches, the belief that in your own free will you can decide for Christ. Of course it's impossible. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who seeks after God. But we don't just confine this warning to modern evangelicals with their long emotional appeals and their pleading with the sinner to find the strength within himself to come to Christ. Liberal Christians too will look to themselves to contribute something to their salvation and safety, looking to Christ as only a good example of a perfect life and a selfless sacrifice for others. They will then try to please God with their works, their supposed innate goodness, their piety. Now the Catechist warns us, anything that we add to the atoning work of Christ, that perfect sacrifice for sin, is worse than pointless. It defeats its own purpose. When we add something to the work of Christ on the cross, we take away from what Jesus has done. And that leads people away from Christ into a lost eternity. So the first danger that we might trust in Christ and saints. We won't do that. The second danger is that we might trust in Christ and in myself. That's a difficulty that we have to watch out for. The third is far less specific, that we might trust in Christ and anything else. Again, we remember that Christ is sufficient for everything we need to keep us to save us and to keep us. It's all his work. It's all his doing. And we need no one or nothing else but him. We don't need other people. Every time that we consider that a mere man or a woman has contributed something to our salvation or our security, even the most godly of men or women, whether it even be a godly parent or a Christian influencer, a pastor, a preacher, an evangelist, we are in danger of falling into the trap of trusting for our salvation and security in Christ plus another. Read carefully the words of Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 11 to verse 13. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. Individuals among you are saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised into the name of Paul? Other people cannot contribute to what Christ has already done. Neither can the law. The law cannot save. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Only Jesus can save. Now we've spent quite a bit of time in this and there's a good reason for that. This is of vital importance. The Catechist sums up the importance of this when he says, though they boast of him in words, they in fact deny the only Saviour Jesus. 
For one of two things must be true. Either Jesus is not a complete saviour, or those who by true faith accept this salvation must find in him all that is necessary for their salvation. There may be people who profess to be Christians, but whose trust is not in the saviour alone. It may be in Christ plus me. Christ plus the prayers of some dead saint. Christ plus the Virgin Mary. Christ plus my pastor. Christ plus my church. The catechist is dogmatic. There are no grey areas here. This is totally black and white. Anyone who adds anything or anyone to Christ is lost. Either Jesus is the complete and perfect saviour from sin who alone can save me and keep me or he is no saviour at all. Let's finish with some self-examination today. Let's look at my life and your life. Am I trusting in Christ alone? The Catechist advises us warns us to trust Christ with true faith, faith given to us as a gift by God himself. He asks us to accept Christ, to rest in his finished work on the cross alone, and to reject any other supposed way to God. <laughs>